Welcome to Fishing Forward, a podcast inspired by fishermen for fishermen that focuses on health, safety, and staying ship shape in the commercial fishing industry. Fishing Forward is brought to you by the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety and by the Coastal Roots Radio Team at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. I'm your co-host, Hannah Harrison. And I'm Phil Loring. In this podcast, we're exploring how fishermen can be thought of as professional fishing athletes. That is, that the nature of their work demands the same high level of mental focus, training, and physical acuity that one might expect from a professional sports athlete. Throughout this series, we're using that lens to understand the many facets of fishermen's minds, bodies, and well-being, and we're digging deep into tough questions around issues that are critical to the fishing industry. In this episode, we're exploring one of the more insidious parts of commercial fishing, anxiety and stress. Let's start up in Alaska, where we're visiting with a fisherman in one of the state's most notorious fisheries. Uh, my name is Brian Harrison. I live in Homer, Alaska, and my fishery is uh, gill netting in Upper Cook Inlet. We're fishing uh, for salmon, and particularly sockeye salmon. Hey, I know that guy. Yeah, if that last name sounds familiar, that's because today we're talking to the fisherman I know best, my dad. Brian fishes 1,200 feet of gill net on a 39-foot drift boat called the Elizabeth Lee in what's known as Upper Cook Inlet, a region in the Cook Inlet waters where drift and set gill net commercial fishermen harvest salmon, typically in the months of June, July, and August. In most years, Brian works with one crew member, and his boat has enough room for sleeping, cooking, and eating to allow for their 24-hour day. A normal opening is 24 hours uh, from the time that you leave the dock to the time that you get back and have unloaded and leave the boat again. Uh, later in the season, the openings will, depending on abundance, will be closer together and they will not necessarily be as long. Cook Inlet is a unique fishery in that it has huge tides, is fed by muddy and silty rivers, is a major shipping corridor, and is home to a wide variety of marine life. And, of course, it is subject to some pretty bad weather. Included in that is the weather, which in Upper Cook Inlet can be uh, pretty challenging. And with the tides that we deal with, which can be up to five and six knots, yeah, with the slower boat, it's impossible to run against the tide. So you, you make your decision early in the day and then you live with it the rest of the day. Cook Inlet is also home to what some call Alaska's fish wars. And we're doing some air quotes here due to the deeply politically contentious atmosphere centered around its fisheries. Stress and anxiety are part of any commercial fishery, but we're focusing on this region today due in part to this additional layer of pressure under which commercial fishermen operate. But before we get to that part, let's hear about the typical sources of stress and anxiety that Brian faces in his fishery. Well, preseason, I would say the uh, biggest concern is uh, having the boat prepared for uh, a season in which downtime is limited and uh, being able to address any kind of breakdowns is usually a uh, crisis situation so that you don't lose further fishing time. In a salmon fishery, as you're probably well aware of, the fish are there for a limited amount of time and you have to catch them when you can and you're allowed. And if you miss them, you miss them. So preseason, you want to be prepared for that. 
in season. It's a fishery that is held within a large, large area, geographic area. And so to find out where those fish are and to be the most effective that you can, we generally fish with groups. Uh, in our group, there's approximately 10 boats on any given year. And it is so important to what we call land on the fish at the very opening at 7 a.m. and try to stay on the fish for the rest of the day. It's extraordinarily difficult to achieve that. And if you have achieved that, it's a pretty successful opening for you. But if you miss and you have to run a fair amount of distance, then oftentimes that fish uh, that everyone else is on has been either caught or has dissipated. And the rest of your day is spent trying to catch up. And this creates a tremendous amount of stress for me personally uh, as a competitive fisherman. For non-fishing people, this issue of missing out on fish may seem confusing. Can't you just catch them the next time? Well, this really gets at the core of the sometimes economically precarious nature of fishing. In the case of salmon fishing, there may be no next time, at least not until next year. And in the meantime, that commercial fishery involved huge upfront costs. Well, there's several aspects to that. The, the first one is if I do miss the fish to begin with, then you have to play, as I said, catch up the rest of the day. With a limited amount of time, there is a greater need to cover your expenses for the day, mm. which is always important. There is a responsibility to my crew to be as productive as we can with what time we have. And when I don't necessarily produce like I feel I'm capable of, then I feel I've let down my crew. I also am hard on myself and uh, second guess decisions I make, uh, the information that I've gotten from the rest of the group, and I process it and try to decide if it is worth moving from where I am already and catching a few to someone that is catching more, but that may not hold up. And by the time I were to move and get there, then I would be catching no more than where I am now. And I've lost all that time with my net in the water running to that other spot, which we call radio fish. You can fish where you are and uh, hopefully it will get better or it will at least stand up or you can roll the dice, so to speak, and run to another spot and chase these radio fish. Because my boat is about an eight or nine knot boat, it is generally better to not spend a lot of time running. Uh, you can't catch any fish with your net on the reel, on the back deck, but you at least have a chance to catch fish if it's in the water. It's just as easy to run away from fish as it is to run to fish. So that is always part of the decision-making process. And that adds a fair amount of stress to your day every day. Uh, if you land on fish and you can stay on them, then you feel like you've got a good start. And no matter what happens the rest of the day, you 
feel like you will at least accomplish what you set out to do, which is make expenses, make your crew money, and hopefully make yourself a little money. This stress and anxiety of trying to deal with the weather, tides, and finding fish can have very real impacts on fishermen's minds and bodies, particularly when they are already facing sleep deprivation, as we've learned in past episodes. Yeah, sleep is always a challenge. Uh, there's a certain amount of um, anxiety before every opening. Uh, when you leave at two in the morning and you have been preparing until eight at night to get ready for that next day, the ability to just drop off and go to sleep for that four, six, eight hours of sleep that you're hoping for is, is pretty challenging and rarely happens. So you get a... Um, a quiet period before the opening for want of a better description of it. And then you go out and fish. So hopefully Brian's getting some sleep during this quiet period, but it's when the opener begins that the stress and anxiety of the job can really kick in. Here's Brian talking about how he used to respond to the stress of finding fish at the beginning of an open period. Yeah. It's not uncommon for uh, fishermen to take these uh, failures pretty uh, seriously. And uh, if I would not start out on fish at the beginning of the day, then I would tend to hyper-focus on what it will take to catch up. And oftentimes, for me, that is such an intense experience that I will forgo eating, I will forgo drinking. Uh, I'm just so focused on what we are doing or catching and what the group is doing or catching and trying to make this decision-making process. And it becomes, it seems to become more critical as the day goes on uh, if we still haven't uh, managed to land on fish. I tend to beat myself up uh, and, and uh, second guess all my decision-making for the day. It becomes very, very uh, uh, stressful and probably counterproductive because the more I question myself, the more I'm less likely to um, make a move and, and feel that it was the correct move, unless, of course, you know, that your net starts to really catch some fish. Now, I'm pleased to say that my dad has found ways around this no eating, no drinking stress response. Here he explains his way of dealing with that mental load. One of the reasons is I've instructed my deckhand to make sure <laughs> that no matter what happens, if he thinks that I'm getting into that phase, that he should bring me some food or some water or remind me to get some food or some water. Uh, when my daughter worked with me, that was her sole job uh, on bad days. Uh, and she was quite good at it. And it, it really tended to help. This is cool to hear how Brian is relying on his crew, his team, if you will to help him manage his stress and mental health on the boat. It's definitely a best practice that we've heard from past episodes of this show. Now, I've been out with your dad on some pretty good days, but he has also figured out how to deal with the inevitable disappointments of a bad day fishing. I learned early on that if I was going to be a successful drift fisherman, I had to learn to let it go. Uh, as soon as 7 o'clock in the evening comes along and we roll up that net, that day is done for me. And it took a while to make that adjustment, but that day's over. You can't change anything that happened that day. It's time to move on. I do have several close fishing friends uh, that I uh, within our group, and they might mull over this for or stew, as the case may be, for two or three days. 
and just really feel that they have underperformed. And I, I decided early on in my career that I was not going to do that. It was, I was not going to let this ruin my life because I had a bad day. It's uh, we all, everybody has bad days. Ours can be uh, more impactful because we haven't uh, earned what we thought we should have earned that day, but that day is over and it's time to move on. And if you can not take that attitude with you into the next opening, of feeling like you did poorly, then it will uh, improve your chances, I believe, for the next opening. So start fresh. Every day is a new day. Let yesterday go. That that has pretty much been my survival tactic to not let the fishery become more stressful than it needs to be. Earlier on, we talked about how Cook Inlet is a notoriously contentious fishery. In our past research in this area, Hannah, we've heard fishermen describe it as catching fish all summer and then fighting for the opportunity to catch fish all winter. It can be a hard and sometimes emotional thing for fishermen to talk about. As as a business owner and operator, fishing has its enough challenges as it is between the weather the fish, the boat, the crew, and to complicate that with a regulatory environment that isn't necessarily friendly to the fleet. It adds a whole nother layer of stress that underlies all of these other things that we deal with on a daily basis. To not be able to count on predictable openings when the biology says you can, to be under a political environment that is hostile to your very existence. All of this just creates a underlying stress that is a multiplier in effect of all the other stresses that go with any business. Hearing that bit of tape there hits really hard. What he says about the difficulty of fighting for a right to exist touches on something that can be hard to pinpoint, but actually may be part of a larger phenomenon known as moral injury. And that's where our next guest comes in. My name is Travis Hall. I'm a clinical psychologist, and uh, currently I work in private practice in a small town in central New York. I did my undergraduate training at Allegheny College, where I got a bachelor's in both psychology and philosophy and then went on to get my PhD at Duquesne University in clinical psychology. Um, And my background is mainly in providing psychotherapy, but also looking at the ways in which um, certain industries are afflicted by concepts that are often used uh, like PTSD, depression, stress, and burnout. I started by asking Dr. Hall to describe what moral injury is. So my introduction to moral injury was when I was a uh, was a trainee and working with veterans, and there was a critique of kind of the list of medical diagnoses that veterans would have: PTSD, substance abuse disorder, major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, intermittent explosive disorder, and there was a growing dissatisfaction at how it reduced a person's experience to a medical category. Um, And so not only left out important pieces 
of a person's lived experience, but actually alienated them from their own experience. And so when veterans would describe their experience of combat, and then someone would say, oh, you have PTSD, all of a sudden they say, well, okay, the doctor says I have PTSD, but for some reason that doesn't sit well with me. Um, and so not only does moral injury come out of, I think, a dissatisfaction and a limitation of the medical model and understanding certain forms of psychological suffering, um, the impact can be even wider in terms of it can shift where interventions are then placed. So disorders and burnouts often refer back to the individual as being deficient or damaged in some way, some way that it's there, it, the onus is on them to fix it. Um, but when we look at sociological, economic, political, cultural contributions to psychological suffering, medical categories are typically and only focused on the individual. So let me try to tease that apart a little bit here. Am I right in hearing that moral injury looks more broadly than at what's going on in one individual's brain and instead shifts the focus to broad social issues that might be affecting this person so as to create suffering or even mental illness? Generally speaking, yeah. Maybe to give a clearer definition, moral injury is thought to be a strong cognitive and emotional response that can occur following an event or a situation that violates or offends a person's moral sense of self or their personal ethical code. Here, Dr. Hall is going to give us an example. Over the course of a, you know, a person's development, we have uh, alongside kind of our physical development and our emotional development, we start to develop values and a moral system and a moral compass that helps guide us through um, our lives. And I think for some people, there are jobs and then there's vocations in terms of it's a calling. And so their moral compass and their moral values bring them to certain kinds of work. Um, certainly that can happen with people who enlist in the military, but we're also seeing, I think, moral injury with healthcare providers. Um, and so when you have a person who was led to a certain profession based on this moral system, but the conditions in which the job um, exist alienates or causes an injury from or to that moral system, that is when a moral injury occurs. And so when, so taking healthcare providers who let's assume that they got into the field because they want to help people, they want to cure disease, they want to, um, you know, alleviate suffering, and then they're finding they're doing more time doing paperwork or the insurance won't, you know, authorize a procedure that they really feel that a patient needs. Now, all of a sudden, moral injuries are occurring or their schedule is so overloaded that they have to cut a person off and say, I have to go and see the next person. Uh, and they take that home with them. And all of a sudden they start resenting themselves. They start resenting their job. Um, people are telling them they're burned out. So they need to do more yoga or deep breathing. And so now the problem is, is theirs. And all of a sudden the thing that they were drawn to, that they wanted to find a way to live according to a certain value or moral system, they no longer are able to. Wow. When Dr. Hall talks about people who feel called to their job, that describes so many of the fishermen we've met who feel that fishing is in their blood and in their families. Yes, I thought the same thing. Dr. Hall's example here about having to do your job, your calling, in a way that feels wrong or falling short of the best that you're able to do 
is really right on the money for fishermen who would rather be fishing instead of fighting for that opportunity to fish. And it's important to note here, Hannah, that moral injury isn't just about not getting along with your boss or being offended by someone's point of view. Rather, moral injury is related to the power that a person may have over another or that a system may have over a group of people. Or as Dr. Hall puts it, This is where someone actually controls the conditions in which you work that, as a consequence, alienates you from the values that drove you to the profession in the first place. I think back on interviews that we've done, Phil, and I hear echoes of this sort of feeling when fishermen have complained to us that they're being regulated out of business or that they're sure making it hard to be a fisherman. That the system in which fishermen are working is creating suffering through power, whether it be through regulation or some other mechanism. And this lines up with studies on moral injury, which shows that moral injury tends to be greatest in circumstances where a person has the least amount of power over the conditions in which they work. And given that there are many parts of commercial fishing conditions over which fishermen have no power at all, and here I'm thinking tides, weather, maybe even the price of fish, it makes sense to me how these types of injuries could occur in this industry. I mean, again, I think there's a lot of nuance and differences between different occupations. Um, the moral injury of veterans is different than the moral injury of healthcare providers, which is different than the moral injury of teachers. But when, um, in my experience working with the farming communities and farmers, um, part of the value system is work harder. That's how you influence and control um, what's going on. Something breaks down, something goes wrong. You might have a week without sleep, but you know, your your work ethic and resilience and determination will get you through it. And that's a great strategy for many of the many of the historic issues that came up in farming. However, with the advent of issues that the farmer exerts no control, working harder is no longer a viable solution and in some ways contributes to the suffering but they don't have any other means over which to exert influence over the conditions in which they work. And so uh, the tried and true method of working harder, looking within, not blaming others, it becomes really uh, destructive when a strong work ethic does not yield the kinds of results that the value or the moral system once promised it would. So understanding all of this about moral injury, do we know what actually happens to a person when they experience it? We do have some idea. To start, it's important to understand that experiencing a moral injury is stressful and that everyone copes with stress differently. Here's Dr. Hall explaining more. What starts to set in is a demoralization and a despair that I think goes beyond what I think medical psychology would call a mood disorder or something like that. Uh, I think when people talk about their lived experience, it goes to something that they might describe as soul crushing or heartbreaking. These are more of the lived experience terms that goes deeper than a, a disease model or a medical model. It strikes something that goes right to the heart of who they are. And perhaps what's most tricky about moral injuries is that the stress they create is happening outside of our control. And it forces us to ask the question, what do we do when our normal coping mechanisms for stress are no longer effective? When the typical ways of responding to the challenges in the profession, like working harder or putting in more hours or investing in new equipment doesn't work, then there becomes this, well, what else is there? 
they're left with all of the tried and true strategies that are both may have worked in the past and consistent with their moral or value system have failed. Now there is a really difficult scenario that people often turn to substance abuse. People may turn to, I mean, they might socially isolate. Um, they may become more aggressive or hostile. Uh, and these are all efforts of trying to manage the stress that comes with a moral injury. In our research on Cook Inlet Fisheries, we've seen that these moral injuries experienced by different user groups often lead them to dehumanize the views of each other. I imagine that these types of injuries can really break down the needed trust between fishermen and other groups like regulators or fisheries managers. Yeah, they really can. And sometimes that breakdown of trust can extend beyond the local fishery and impact a person's worldviews. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, and I think it can extend to even the world in general, that the world seems like a different place because it was always viewed from the lens of whatever felt true to their identity. And so a moral injury goes right, I mean, you can call it an identity crisis. It goes right to the heart of who people are because what has guided them and defined and positioned them in the world has now started to falter, so it started to become frayed. And so there can even be a cynicism at the profession itself, the thing they once loved, they now hate, which is an incredible loss because it's not just a profession, it's also part of who they are. Now on this podcast, we're always interested in finding solutions to the challenges that face commercial fishermen. So I asked Dr. Hall, how can fishermen deal with moral injuries? What solutions are there when they experience these kinds of challenges? Yeah, I don't know if we have a great way of responding to moral injuries. And I think part of that is because the in the medical and even in the psychological world, moral injuries get converted into major depressive disorder. So here's your antidepressant medication as a remedy for a moral injury. The, the, the diagnosis per se and the treatment don't line up. Post-traumatic stress disorder implies that there is something disordered about the individual. And so too often our language has pointed the remedy uh, in response to this kind of suffering back at the individual. You're burned out you're stressed, you're depressed, you, you've been traumatized. And so now you need treatment, you need to make changes. And we're not saying, look at what we are doing to this group of people, whether it be friends, teachers, healthcare providers, farmers, and saying, what do we as society do to either prevent, mitigate, or treat the moral injuries that people receive by engaging in certain professions. So it really is a paradigm shift, not only in understanding the suffering of the individual, but shifting the response or the treatment of moral injuries from the individual to society and the systems of power that either inflict those moral injuries or those moral injuries are occurred in the service of society. Well, today's episode took us into some depth around issues of stress, anxiety, and moral injury. What were your big takeaways, Hannah? 
for me, it was really helpful to understand that those deep heartbreaking feelings of hopelessness or powerlessness that fishermen sometimes feel are not just in their heads or something that they can just manage away with yoga or deep breathing. Understanding that these events have a name, moral injuries, and that they can deeply affect fishermen seems like a good first step in addressing them. Yeah. And I think for me, hearing Brian talk about letting go of the fish he didn't catch so we could focus on tomorrow's opener is a good lesson in thinking about what we can and what we can't control. To wrap up, I'm going to give the last word to Dr. Hall, who I think leaves us with some poignant comments on how the stress and anxiety that fishermen feel may reflect more broadly on how we as a society treat our food producers. I think part of our distance and alienation from the industries that feed us lends society to having an apathy or indifference to what happens to the people who produce our food. And so ultimately, I think society at large wields the most power, but we don't because we don't really know what's going on. Whatever we buy in the store is what we buy. And if it's too high, we grumble. If it's cheap, we're happy. But really the power I think resides in how to keep society happy while making profits. (laughs) And so I think there's a lot of uh, work that can be done. It's not just in the hands of people who have a lot of power. It's, I think, in society educating ourselves and what do the industries that that serve us, whether it be veterans, healthcare providers, um, you know, people who provide our food and saying, well, what is it like for them? And saying, is that a reflection of the values that we want to uphold? Or do we see what's happening and saying, no, we need to do something different as a society? Thanks for joining us today. In this episode, you heard from Brian Harrison, who fishes for salmon in Cook Inlet, Alaska, and Dr. Travis Hall, who works as a clinical psychologist in New York State. Fishing Forward is a production of the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety and Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. We love to hear your feedback. You can share your thoughts with us via email at fishing at necenter.org. That's fishing at N-E-C-E-N-T-E-R dot Or you can leave us a voicemail by calling 607-221-4448. And of course, you can also visit us on the Fishing Forward podcast webpage at www.coastalroots.org forward slash fishing forward pod. Though we do our best to bring you accurate information and lived experiences in this podcast, please remember that all of the health-related information presented here is the opinion of the interviewees, and it should not be interpreted as licensed medical advice. As always, talk to your physician about your own health needs and circumstances. Fishing Forward is funded by the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety. We also receive support from the Alaska Marine Safety Education Association, Oregon State University, the Pacific Northwest Agricultural Safety and Health Center, Fishing Partnership Support Services, the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, the NORA Agriculture, Forestry and Fishing Council, the Southwest Center for Agricultural Health, Injury Prevention and Education, and the Local Catch Network. Say sailing.